Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Gospel of John, chapter 12. Yesterday, if you were paying attention, uh, many, many young people across the country were marching and gathering together in rallies. Uh, they were saying that these young people probably constitute uh, the largest gathering of young people in such a manner since the Vietnam War. Uh, in protests and uh, calling uh, for changes that would allow them to live and not die. Today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is the time in which we remember a great gathering of Galilean pilgrims moving from the northern province down into the southern province uh, to celebrate Passover together. And entire crowds were marching into the city of Jerusalem, singing songs of praise as they marched. We would like to study a chapter describing the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, come to give us life. I'm reading from John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Then six days before Passover, we would believe this to be the uh, Saturday evening before the Friday crucifixion, Jesus came to Bethany. Uh, he'd been out in Ephraim, uh, the pressure of the Jewish leaders to capture him and kill him was strong, uh, the timing of the father's plan as to when he would lay down his life freely with the power to take it up again uh, was timed perfectly uh, for this particular Passover. So just at the right time, Jesus came to Bethany, a little village just outside of Jerusalem. He has dear friends there. This is where Lazarus lived, uh, who you may recall in the previous chapter uh, had fallen ill and died, and Jesus had come and raised him from the dead. This particular party is not in the home of Mary and Martha. It seems to be in a dear friend's home, Simon the leper's home, but he seems to be such a, a close family friend uh, that the sisters are assisting with the meal. Verse 2, they made him supper, Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at table with him. Lazarus is now famous. People have come far and wide to meet the man who died and was resurrected from the dead. So the plot to stamp out this truth was not only to grab and kill Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus as well. This was a, a fun time, uh, dear friends, a time in which they were celebrating uh, Jesus' love for them, uh, celebrating uh, the joy that Lazarus is no longer dead, he is with them, and the dinner party is interrupted with a lavish expression of love that causes everyone to become uncomfortable. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. A spikenard ointment uh, is extremely expensive. It was uh, made of roots and stems of an aromatic herb from northern India. Uh, they would import it. It would be 
sealed in an alabaster flask. It didn't have the ability to open and close it to where you just take a tiny bit of perfume and put it on. Uh, once you broke the neck, uh, you had it open to the air. A very powerful, very beautiful scent. In fact, John as an eyewitness is remarking how the entire house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. In one sense, uh, a number of the disciples uh, were saying, that's an expensive gift. Uh, some were thinking to themselves, that is amazing love that she has poured out. Some were thinking, what a sense of gratitude she has for him. It's an interesting thing for us to process how we give gifts and how we show love. Uh, a wedding took place uh, yesterday. Uh, I saw, I think, an announcement of a shower coming up uh, in the bulletin uh, where uh, that person is registered. We get invitations like that. Uh, we go to the stores uh, where the registration is. I went uh, to a baby store, uh, and I haven't had babies for a long time, and I haven't been shopping for baby gifts a long time. It was a gigantic store of nothing but things for babies. Uh, I was fascinated. I didn't even want to look for the gift quite at first. I just wanted to walk around and touch everything. I was shaking those cribs, and I was saying, do you remember how flexible our crib was and how you wondered if it was going to collapse? These things are are built strong. These are cool cribs. They had all kinds of electronic devices. I like anything electronic. That, that's what we bought as a gift, uh, was a kind of a, a baby monitor that uh, made it possible for them to hear the baby from a distance, something that uh, we didn't have in the day of uh, rearing our kids. But it's a very interesting thought of how much we're going to spend. And it has something to do with how close we feel to the person, doesn't it? Normally we sort of gauge, you know, is this a $60 friend? Is this a $40 friend? Is this a, is this a $20 friend? You know, what, what, are we, what are we thinking here? Isn't it amazing how we put price tags on love and friendship? I watch my kids as they give uh, gifts at Christmas time, as they fall in love uh, with young ladies. And I look at the gift they give me for Christmas and the gift they give the lady they're in love with for Christmas, and I go, oh, I see my place in the spectrum here. I see where your real love lies. Okay, okay. Yesterday at the uh, marches in Florida, they had a number of people wearing price tags on their persons. The price tag was a dollar and five cents, and they were trying to tell the senator from Florida, that's how much I am worth to you compared to the donations you are getting, compared to the number of young people in our state, you consider me worth a dollar five. And what was interesting about what Mary did to Jesus that day is she spent a year's worth of money that could not be reinvested, uh, that could not be used over time, it was all poured out at once. Now, how many of us have like even a year's worth of salary saved away? That would be the rare one among us. Certainly not more than 50% would have a year's worth of salary. 
would we spend it all in a moment? Because the person we sought to honor was that worthy? It's an amazing thought. And it, it is a thought to say, how much do I love Jesus? And how much do I want to tell him how grateful I am that he just doesn't give me physical life, that he gives me spiritual life, that he's not just a man, he's the God-man, and that he gives me access right into the throne room of God, able to pray and have God hear me and answer me. Well, the disciples were there as well, including Judas Iscariot. Judas was well-respected among the disciples. He was the only one from Judea. The rest were Galileans. He was the only one from a higher class. The rest of them were kind of ordinary. He was the only one that seemed to be wealthy. He was the one who was entrusted to be the treasurer for them as gifts came in to support them as they were moving about those three and a half years. Judas cared for the finances. And Judas couldn't stand what Mary was doing to Jesus. And he spoke up and tried to influence the group. Verse 4 says, One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, John has to add, in case you're forgetting now, this is the one who will betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii? And then you got to love it. And given to the poor. Why didn't she sell this and give it to the poor? In Los Angeles County, uh, we have more homeless people than any other county in the entire United States. Uh, we have so many people that the Los Angeles County Supervisor is saying, we're going to take that empty lot downtown near where they're living on the streets. We're going to put trailers on them that will have uh, places for them to sleep, places for them to use the restrooms. It costs us a million dollars a trailer. We don't care. We're going to build these things. We're going to get them off the street. The restaurant owners nearby are saying, like, we don't want these people right next to our restaurants. Don't do that. Down where I live and where I ride my bike along the Santa River Trail, uh, we had an encampment of homeless people that went on for two miles. They finally decided, we're not going to let you live here anymore. Uh, we're going to force you out. It took them months to force them out. They, for the amount of people spread over two miles, they found 15,000 syringes. They found 1,000 bicycles. I had my 10 speed stolen twice in my youth, once from my house, once from school. I know what it feels like as a teenager to get your bike stolen. Hurts you a lot. And they said, well, what are we going to do with these people? Where are we going to put these people? So Orange County came up with an idea, we'll put them in motels. I just read yesterday how much they spent, $75 to $125 per night per homeless person. And they said, like, uh, we'll give them vouchers for a month. The month is coming up. Now they're going to have to decide, now what are we going to do? Isn't it interesting that in a homeless problem here in America, we can actually put a price tag to it as to how valuable that person is and how much we will spend on them and how worthwhile that person is? Judas is putting a price tag on Jesus. 
And Judas is saying, he's not worth 300 denarii. That money should have gone to the poor. Now, John is writing after the fact, and John has understood the situation much better. And so as John tells the story to us, he's explaining how we should feel about it. He says in verse 6, this he said, not because he cared for the poor, in other words, he's a hypocrite, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. Amazing. There was an imposter right among the twelve, one who acted like he was spiritual and one who was a complete fake. And though he talked a big talk, he was actually a thief, willing to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If Jesus isn't going to set up his kingdom this coming, if he's saying he's going to have to come again, if I don't get a place as a governor in his kingdom... I'm going to sell him out. I'm going to get for him whatever amount of money I can get. A huge question then comes to us as we read through this. We would say, well, what do I do with the resources I have? How do I spend my money? And what's interesting about us is our personal comfort And our personal entertainment are of such high value to us as Americans that we seldom think about other people and their needs. We seldom actually prioritize the other person and not ourselves. We usually think selfishly. And even when Judas was lying about what he thought should have been done with the money, he was planning to steal it and spend it on his own pleasures. He wasn't actually intending to give it to the poor. And it causes us to say, are my priorities out of whack? Are are my expressions of love monetized inaccurately? Am I the kind of person who would have also felt, as Judas was expressing this verbally, you know, that's right. That was too much money. That was too lavish a gift to have poured out on Jesus. That was a waste. So we wonder, how is Jesus going to handle this? He says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Now, I don't think she actually personally thought of it that way. I think she was thinking, I am expressing to Jesus with everything I have. I would say the quantity of money that it would take to buy this would constitute a life savings. She took her life savings and in one instant poured it out on Jesus in love. She was probably thinking this of a celebration, of a celebration of Jesus and the love that she had for him. And he says, do you know what we do with the bodies of people we love? We don't let it putrefy. We actually pack it with spices. And again, that's monetized based on how wealthy you are is how many spices are put on that body. And when Jesus was buried, you may recall that he was buried in a rich man's grave and was wrapped with a hundred pounds of spices. They would cake it on in between layers of linen wrappings in order to, in a sense, preserve the body and keep the stench 
uh, from leaking away from the grave itself. Jesus then, because he knew what was happening this week, this is Saturday night. By 3 p.m. on Friday, he will be dead. And they will be seeking to find a place to lay his body. And they'll be thinking about how they will honor him in death. And he's saying, you know, what she has just done is symbolic of what's going to happen to me. It's as if she has kept this for the day of my burial. And then he says something that at first might seem a bit insensitive. He says, for the poor you have with you always, but me you don't always have. Now, what's interesting about this is not that he doesn't care for the poor. He has cared more for the poor than any of the rest of them have. He loves us all equally, not based on our ability to manipulate people with our wealth, but based on the value as a creature created in the image of God, as a person for which he is willing to die and give his life as a sacrifice for us. It's as if he's saying the causes of poverty are many, and we'll have many occasions to help the poor, but time is short if you're thinking of me. If you're wishing to express your love for me, you don't have much more time. This is Saturday. By Friday, I'll be dead. What she has done is honorable. And this causes us to say to ourselves, I have to re-examine how I use my resources, and I have to prioritize my expressions of love. I have to ask myself, how and when will I show my love? When a person dies, I'm kind of embarrassed and awkward about the whole thing, and, and I, I wonder, like, uh, should I call? Uh, should I not call? Should I say something? Should I, I do something? I just feel this hesitation. I, I feel as if, well, maybe I would be interrupting them uh, were I to place a call. When my mother passed away, uh, my father was by himself up at uh, the family cabin at Lake Arrowhead, and uh, I was coming out uh, from the Midwest to be a part of the funeral, and so I arrived quickly and uh, was the only one up with him at the cabin. Uh, he was still trying to process uh, her death that had happened uh, uh, just so recently, and uh, he was trying to make plans uh, as to how uh, the funeral would go and all that, and he seemed completely distracted and detached. It was hard for me to express my sorrow and my love for him. It was... It was kind of awkward and, and stiff. Then that evening, the phone kept ringing and ringing and ringing. And it was all these friends and relatives, some of them from decades past, calling to express to him their love and their concern and their condolences and tell fun stories of my mother and uh, to seek to encourage him. And the man who all day had been awkward and stiff and having a hard time functioning, was a completely different person on the phone. And the phone didn't stop ringing. These are the old days when you just had an ordinary phone and you couldn't get through if someone was on the phone. You know, uh, the, It would just ring busy and you'd have to wait and call back again. You couldn't like leave a message or something. And so as soon as he'd hang up, the phone would ring again. So it means people were trying to reach him. 
And he was such a different person from the expression of love from all these friends and relatives. I asked him about it, and I, and, and I, I said, you know, for me, I would wonder, should I call or not? And he, he said, and uh, sometimes he had these, these wise expressions that have stayed with me my whole life. He says, if you ever are wondering, should I call or shouldn't I, always default to call. And so that's what I have always done. I have ever since learned the lesson when I'm going back and forth, should I call or shouldn't I call? I should call. And then sometimes it's like, should I go to the funeral or shouldn't I go? And it's going like, and sometimes the funeral is clear across the country. Should I go or shouldn't I go? And Carol will go like, well, what did your dad say? And it's like, okay, I'll go. And it, and it causes you to realize we have to prioritize our expressions of love because there's moments in time that fleet away and then they're gone and the opportunity isn't there any longer. And it's not that Jesus doesn't love the poor. He loves them more than we do. But he's saying, you don't have much time with me. So use this time carefully. And if you think that gift was too lavish, you don't understand. Jesus doesn't want just a little bit of us. Jesus wants every facet of our being. He wants our whole heart. You don't always have me, he says. Verse 9, now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on the account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in him. This was now the week of the Passover. It's now Sunday morning, and the crowds are flocking in. They have walked a long way to get from Galilee down to Jerusalem. As they were arriving from different directions, they formed entire columns of people, all marching in together, and they sang the Hillel Psalms, uh, the songs that include the famous quotes here of Psalm 118. And it's as if while they're singing about their longing for the Messiah to come, here is Jesus right in their midst. And it's almost ironic. Every year they sang these same songs parading into Jerusalem saying, save now, please save. And then suddenly here's Jesus and they attribute properly these psalms to the one for whom they were written. Verse 12, the next day, Sunday morning, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they'd heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees. This, this is kind of funny. I don't know if you saw any of the, the video yesterday of what was taking place in the streets around the country, but these guys started ripping down branches off of palm trees. They were used as symbols of victory. When a conqueror would come back into town after having won the battle, they'd, they'd wave palm branches. It, it was a sign of a conqueror winning. They went out to meet him. They cried out with wild enthusiasm. Hosanna, translation means please save or save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Israel. 
the king of Israel. What's amazing is they're actually saying, this is the Messiah. This is our king. Wow. Jesus had been in their midst three years in public ministry, and Jesus had regularly proclaimed himself as the king, setting up his kingdom. In fact, he would say, like, the kingdom is right here in your midst. The king is here, and the kingdom is available if you will entrust yourself to me. But as fickle as our politics is, it seems like a lot of people were much more enthusiastic than they were really willing to transfer trust from themselves to the person of Jesus Christ. It seems many of them just go along with what the crowd is doing, as if they don't even understand completely what they're doing. But it was prophetic. It was fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 14, then Jesus, when he'd found a young donkey, sat on it as is written. This is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, a prophecy that compares the way in which Alexander the Great would ride into a city with the way in which the Messiah will ride into the city. He did not come on a war horse. He did not come on a chariot. He did not come with a sword. He did not have a crown on his head. He came in peace, riding on a donkey's colt. I have zero experience with donkeys. My wife has uh, ridden them uh, regularly as she traveled around the countryside in, in Bolivia, and she can tell very interesting stories about what donkeys are like. But it's very beautiful to see the symbolism of Jesus coming as the prophesied Messiah and King, coming in peace to establish his kingdom. And John has to admit that the symbolism of all this, they missed. He says his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had done these things. They were lacking the perspective of the cross and of the resurrection. They needed the help of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus in John 16 in the upper room on Thursday night explained to them, I will give you my spirit and he will bring to your memory the things that I have said and the things that I've shown to you. He will explain the future to me, to you, and you will be able to understand these things. And it's exactly what's taking place as John is writing his gospel. He's now understanding the righteous purpose of what has taken place here. Verse 17 is the size of the crowds keep increasing. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they'd heard that he'd done this sign. And so a number of people are joining with the throng, including witnesses of the resurrection of Lazarus, which is impossible, as you know. No one can give life to a dead man. Only God could give life, which means this must be the promised Messiah if he can raise a man from the dead. And yet the Pharisees, their religious leaders, were terribly nervous that they were going to lose control. They were occupied by Roman forces. Uh, they were obstinate. Most of the time, Rome ruled their captive people directly. They had given up with the Jews and let the Jews rule their own people on day-to-day affairs. And these Pharisees, the controlling party at this time between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees were the political liberals, the Pharisees were the political and religious conservatives, 
the Pharisees were largely in control at this point, and they were saying, we will lose our place, the control we have over the people. Rome will take it away from us if we let the crowds go after them. And they were saying, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world is gone after him. An exaggeration, but a beautiful point. And that is that people could see briefly that Jesus is who he said he is. It was a day of popular acclaim, but sadly, the people had little spiritual perception. As I watched some of the little kids holding up placards yesterday, I was saying, like, you're too little to have even written that placard. I don't think you can even read what's written on that placard. You're pretty young. You wish that the people had truly perceived the actions in which they were participating. Most of the crowds here did not really believe in Jesus. And then an interesting prophetical coming of Greeks to see Jesus caused Jesus to realize that now is the moment. When Jesus sets up his kingdom in the future, when he returns again, the nations will come to give him acclaim. From all over the world, people will come to acknowledge him as the king of heaven and earth. And in verse 20, there were certain Greeks who'd come up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. He has a, a Greek name, a good person to try to seek out if you were speaking Greek. And they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. They seem to be God-fearing Greeks. Uh, and Philip told Andrew. Andrew went and told Jesus. Apparently, they screen visitors. You can't quite get to Jesus very easily. And Jesus realizes this is the moment, and he speaks up and tells them the significance of what is taking place. Verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Son of Man was his favorite title for himself. As a little kid, I thought he just made it up for himself because he was human and he wanted to emphasize his humanity so we wouldn't think of him only as a god, but think of him as the God-man. Actually, it's a title from the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 in which God the Father has said that he will have a human being rule over this earth. That was the plan originally with Adam. Adam was supposed to be the mediator here on earth between God and the earth. He was to rule it and subdue it. Adam failed, as you know. And Daniel, in these amazing future prophecies, he prophesied that a son of man, a human being, would be a world ruler, ruling over all the earth for God himself. So Jesus took this title to himself, and he says, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. To be glorified, you think something wonderful is going to happen. But he then talks about his death. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Occasionally, I get dirt spots amongst uh, my grassy lawn and I, I have to go out and, and patch it. Sometimes I just try to stir the dirt up, put some seeds in it, and try to water it like I'm watering the rest of the lawn. 
And usually I have just wasted the seeds. The seeds die, no grass grows, the soil was not prepared properly, and wasted seed. So what you actually have to do is spend quality time with the proper kind of soil that will be responsive to these tender little seeds, the right kind of food that will feed the seeds as they're young, and you have to keep that soil well watered or else they'll die before they mature. You could lose the seed if you don't care for it properly. And he says, in order for any farmer to get crops from his seed, he has to make an investment in which he loses control over the seed. He has to plant it in the ground. He says, that's a picture of death. And from the death of that seed actually comes the plant that will sustain you, the plant that will give you life, the plant that feeds you. Uh, in, in Iowa, where I lived for 23 years, uh, those corn farmers uh, were scared to death as they were planting uh, their seed in their fields uh, during the season when hail could knock down uh, those little sprouts as they came up out of the ground. They would put like $30,000 worth of seed in the ground and when the hail would come, they'd be praying their way all the way through it because if the hail hits that little stem and breaks it, that seed is gone, your harvest is gone, you, know, you could lose a terrific amount of money and you uh, will be hurt financially. There's an entire risk here. He says, but I want to give you an example of what I am doing and what I'm asking you to do. I'm going to lay my life down as a sacrifice. I am going to pay your debt. I am going to give my life in your place. I am going to make it possible for the Father to forgive you for your sins. Now, what I'm asking you to do is to not cling to your life selfishly, to spend it on your own pleasures. I want you to give your life as a gift back to me and let your life be a testimony of your love and your gratitude as to what I have done for you. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Using the illustration of his death, burial, and resurrection, using the illustration of putting seed into the ground and getting a crop, using us in our figuring of how much is Jesus worth, how much love must I give him, how much of me does he want, he's saying, if you cling to your own life to spend it on your own pleasures, you won't be pleased you'll actually be disappointed. So if you cling to your life, you may think you're saving it for yourself, but you actually lose it. And in this paradox, he says, the one who hates his life, and in other words, love and hate hurt our Western ears. Uh, to the Eastern readers, it doesn't seem uh, so harsh to them. They can understand the exaggeration for effect. They can, they can understand the sense in which he's saying, for whom do you live? For whom are you acting? For whom are you serving? 
You can't so love your life that it belongs solely to you to be spent on your own pleasures. If you want true pleasure, you have to function a way in which you're demonstrating that you're living for eternity, not for the here and now. In the song the kids sang, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things you're so worried about, such as what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? How am I going to have a roof over my head? All these things we worry about. He says, let me take care of those things. You prioritize serving me. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I'll take care of the rest. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. These are scary words to process because they ask so much of us. And as we parse this out, as we start saying, well, he can't really mean all that, can he? I, I think of the risk of what it was like to marry my wife. I met her in college, a wonderful young lady. Uh, first, we just hung around in groups of friends. Uh, we got to know each other well enough that uh, we continued to have interest in each other. We decided, uh, I'm very interested in pursuing a relationship with you or you. At first we were saying, we're not ready for this kind of thing. But eventually we said, no, let's, let's uh, develop a relationship and get to know each other better. If you thought of it analytically and thought, am I making the right decision here? you would constantly have doubts and say, am I really sure about everything? But what you're finding is, in a love relationship, that there is a sense of risk, but there's also a necessary commitment that without that commitment, there can't even be the kind of relationship that we're talking about. And the closer you get to the actual wedding date, the more you might start saying, like, big decision. This is a lifelong decision. Am I making the right decision? And yet, I never regret marrying my wife. I never regret making the commitment to partner with her as life partners, husband and wife, and saying, we will live as husband and wife the rest of our days. We have committed ourselves to each other. Marriage means you can't be selfish. You can't be self-centered. The only way marriage is going to work is if you prioritize the other person. And these young people today who grow up in the selfish world in which America lives, in which we focus everything on ourselves, in which I always win, we keep when we do marriage counseling, we're all just like shocked. We're going like, you have no idea what marriage is like. <laughs> we have to convince you it's not going to work unless you prioritize the other person. So why are we shocked then when Jesus would say, where's your heart? Where's your priority? I want your heart. You can't cling to your life in a selfish way. You're going to lose everything you ever thought you clung to. 
It's going to just fall through your fingers. But if you take the risk and make a commitment to me and live for me, I'm telling you, you will not only gain everything you ever thought you were clinging to, you will gain eternal life and a relationship with God forever. Just like a seed has to die to bear fruit, in some ways, each of us has to die to ourselves as we stop trusting in ourselves and entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ and the love that he's expressed to us And we say, though it's expensive, I give you everything I am. I am yours. If we can do that in marriage, can we not do that for the King eternal, our God, our Savior, the one who's made us? Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we come before you and we ask on behalf of the truth of your word that as we celebrate Palm Sunday and see your son as the king and yet see in the crowds people who briefly sang of him and briefly congratulated him but never really entrusted themselves to him. We see with, within even the 12 a traitor who cared more about stealing money or gaining political power than truly entrusting himself to Jesus. Oh, Father, for ourselves, I ask that you would help us not to monetize our love for you or our time that we're willing to spend with you or the efforts that we would exert. But instead, as we saw in the example of Mary, to lavishly pour out our love upon you not worrying about what other people think, but just loving you with all that we are and have. Oh, Father, if you want all of us, if you want us to entrust ourselves to you completely, we are willing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.